Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the final study in our short series on Romans chapter 9 to 11. I need hardly say uh, that my aim this morning is not to answer every question in this age-old debate about uh, the tension between God's sovereignty and human free will. My aim instead is to provide you with a framework which will allow you to take a scripturally balanced view of the problem for yourselves. Now, I will, of course, be forced to adopt a position uh, on some of the key issues, uh, but as I say, please don't expect all the answers uh, to be proffered over the next 30 minutes. Now, you'll notice from the first slide that this talk is the short version of a much longer talk on the subject that will be published on YouTube next Saturday. If you're not terribly interested in these matters, then my strong recommendation is that you ignore the long version completely. But if you want to hear more detailed scriptural justification for, for some of the assertions uh, that I make this morning, then arm yourself with a cup of strong coffee and a Bible and watch the long version, which will be, uh, be on YouTube on Saturday. Now, in the opening talk of this series, uh, Danny presented us with three pillars that uphold our understanding of these issues. Uh, one pillar relates to God's sovereignty. You want to move on the next slide? One pillar relates to God's sovereignty. Um, a second relates to human freedom. That's our ability to choose. But Danny pointed out from Romans 9 that there is a third pillar. The Apostle Paul is animated by a concern that God might be accused of being unjust. In verse 14 of that chapter, he asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's an obvious concern when you think about it. If the justice pillar isn't present, then the whole scheme would reduce to a power struggle between God and humans. Now, Danny did warn you that I would be adding a fourth pillar, and you can see it on the screen. We saw in our studies that God's deepest instinct is to have mercy on all. Chapter 11, verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That divine instinct obviously comes from God's love. God is love, the Apostle John tells us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, says the Apostle Paul. Now, it's no accident that the four pillars have been arranged in the shape of a cross. It's the cross which most re clearly reveals what God is like. So our thinking about all these matters must be cruciform. Uh, I'm going to argue that the apparent tensions between, that exist between these four concepts can only be resolved by the cross. Uh, the cross of Christ reconciles God's love and God's justice, and the cross reveals the true character of God's power. In fact, the cross is described as the power of God. It's only when we have a right understanding of power that we can begin to see the coherence of divine sovereignty and human freedom. So let's begin with the concept of justice, and then we'll work our way around the diagram in an anti-clockwise direction. One of the most famous statements made about law is that justice must not only be done, justice must be seen to be done. We believe in open courts. In the United States, the uh, judgments of each Supreme Court judge, justice are published. Justice, if it is to be justice, must be open and transparent. In Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John describes the final judgment of humanity as uh, they stand before God in his great courtroom. And John says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, so we're in an open court here. The Bible sets out the principles that will be used to determine people's guilt. Their actions will be examined using court documents. Some will be judged 
much more sternly than others. And then the context in which each defendant lived will be taken into account. Witnesses will be called. Matthew chapter 12, the Lord Jesus issues uh, a strict warning to his own generation when he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the repeating of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. So the simple point I'm making here is that God's justice is rational and understandable. It's out in the open. Everyone, including the guilty parties, will see the utter fairness and consistency, the rationality of the verdicts that God reaches. Second, it's important to note that God does not blame us for being born sinful. Now, the doctrine of original sin is, of course, entirely scriptural. There is no part of our personality that is undamaged by sin. Sin has had a pervasive effect throughout our entire personalities. But rightly understood, the doctrine of original sin is a sympathetic doctrine. It explains to us why we are the way we are. So we should imagine ourselves to be in a doctor's surgery, not in a law court, when original sin is being discussed. You are riddled with a terrible cancer, the divine physician tells us gently. But that in itself does not make us guilty. Otherwise, a two-day-old baby would be guilty of sin. And that, of course, is a monstrous concept. No, we are guilty before God because, as Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned. Again, in Romans 5.12, the Greek says, all in Adam have sinned. In other words, we're guilty because of our actions, not because of our ruined nature. And finally, we must consider the solemn question about those who are cast into hell. John chapter 3 is very clear on the single criterion that leads to that awful destiny. The Apostle John says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, the criterion which determines this terrible judgment is about how people respond to the light they have been given. In Revelation 20, John is equally clear. He says, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now note that this book is not the book that listed out the defendant's actions. This book is different. John concludes his description of that scene with these solemn words. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is what it says. It's a list of everyone who has ever lived. It came into existence, says John, at the foundation of the world, when Adam and Eve were created. And it contains the names of everyone who has ever lived, even the stillborn and the aborted. But the scriptures indicate that stubborn unbelievers can have their names blotted out of the book of life. So when we put all of John's theology together, we see that people are eternally lost for one reason only, a willful, stubborn refusal to believe the evidence God has placed in front of them. Now, given what we've learned about God's justice, it must follow as a matter of logic, as we move now to uh, human freedom, it must follow that people must have the ability to choose to be saved. As we saw in last week's study, unregenerate people can be drawn to Christ. They may be spiritually dead, but they still retain the moral capacity 
to judge the Lord Jesus' teaching and his character and their own lives. Our Lord repeatedly tells unregenerate people to make those sorts of judgments throughout John's gospel. But I would gently invite those of you who disagree with what I've just said uh, uh, to imagine the following scenario. A man appears before God at the great white throne and he is condemned to eternal perdition. May I ask a question? The man asks. Why am I being cast into hell? Because you have not believed in Jesus, comes the reply. But how could I do so, asks the man. I am spiritually dead and therefore incapable of responding to Christ or even being aware of him. The man would have made a rational argument, would he not? Now I suppose the man points to the list of all his sins in the open books in the courtroom. Was I free to choose to do those wrong things, he asks? Yes, God replies, I'm not the author of evil. You committed those sins because you made the choice to sin. I see, says the man. So you have set up a universe where I am free to choose anything except choose to be saved. Is that right? Now, of course, some thoughtful theologians in the Reformed tradition have sought to resolve that problem by redefining the concept of choice. If you want to understand their arguments, then you'll have to listen to the long version of the talk. But in summary, they propose a doctrine called compatibilism. And according to that doctrine, I am free provided that no one constrains my behavior. Okay? Now, so by that definition, a seriously drunk man is free to walk in a straight line when a policeman asks him to do so. No one is stopping him from walking in the straight line. So, says the compatibilist, human beings are free to choose <clears throat> salvation in the sense that no one is stopping them. They just happen to be spiritually dead on the inside. But that argument, I would suggest, is explicitly rejected by the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel. He likens it to blaming a blind man for being unable to see. So I think logic and a sense of justice compels us to concede that God has created us with the real ability to choose. And be, as beings made in the image of God, we have personal agency. We have been given the power to do otherwise. Now, some of you may be shifting uncomfortably in your seats just now because you're aware that most of the time we are not free to make choices. We are enslaved to our sinful habits. The sinful attitudes of our hearts have wired neural pathways in our brains that can make us feel at times that we don't have the ability uh, to choose. And that is an important insight. And it leads us into a discussion about the love of God. Scripture makes it clear that God has a sincere longing to save every individual. God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't have pet children. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He is not willing that any should perish. And so God in his love expends incalculable effort to draw us to Christ. As we saw last week in chapter 10 of Romans, God has done everything for us. In the realm of objectivity, he supplies us with evidence and arguments. He puts us through experiences to convince us of truth. And then within our personalities, in the subjective world, it's as if, it's as if he has even put the words, I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, on the very tip of our tongues, says Paul. In other words, his spirit contends with us, strengthening our mental and emotional faculties, faculties that have been wrecked by sin, so that we can arrive at a moment when we are genuinely free to choose. But the choice will be ours. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. All day long I've held out my hands, 
to a stiff-necked and stubborn people, says God. When it comes to God's sovereignty, we can begin by accepting the witness of Scripture that God is all-knowing, and that knowledge includes knowledge of the future. He knows the end from the beginning. He can foresee what we will do, and He knows what we would have done. In fact, the whole of history is the fulfillment of God's promises. So Christ can say, I saw Satan fall from heaven when he's speaking of a future event. He knew that an old rooster would crow three times before Peter denied him. Secondly, it's important to say that nothing happens in this universe without God's permission. So we must step away from what is sometimes called open theism. And that misguided doctrine lies at the heart of the book called The Shack, which some of you may remember. God doesn't stand on the sidelines wringing his hands impotently as his creatures do all sorts of terrible things that he can't control. Nothing happens in this universe unless God permits it. But that's not the same thing as saying that God ordains everything that happens. God is not the author of evil. I don't need to spend much time on the last two points uh, on this slide because they have been covered in detail in the previous studies. God chooses some individuals and groups uh, to advertise his mercy. He did that with Israel. And he has predestined the destination of every member of the body of Christ. As Danny pointed out in his first study, it's the destination that is predetermined, not the choice for salvation. I can choose to get on a plane to Tenerife but once I'm on the plane, the destination is determined. I have no choice about where I will end up once I board the plane. Now, all that hard work allows us to finesse the framework a little. It seems to me that the witness of Scripture is that God exercises responsive sovereignty, generous love, and transparent justice. And he has endowed us with creaturely freedom which is the freedom to do otherwise. And now the obvious question arises. Can we find a scriptural balance between those four truths? This diagram is an attempt to show what happens when we lose balance. Someone who focuses exclusively on God's love and ignores God's justice is going to end up like Rob Bell's uh, with his love wins theology, a sort of soupy universalism. On the other extreme, some theological systems end up portraying a God who is unkind, who appears to be harsh, a God who's so concerned with his holiness and his power that he's prepared to damn nearly every creature he has ever made. On the vertical axis, those who overemphasize human freedom end up in open theism. God is reduced to an impotent spectator, wringing his hands in despair at the chaos his creatures have made. He can't be held responsible for the world's suffering because he's not in charge of the world. At the other extreme, we end up with determinism. Human beings are reduced to automatons. No creature, angelic or material, can do anything that has not been determined, ordained by God. And the problem with that doctrine is that automatons cannot be blamed or praised for anything. They aren't morally responsible agents. The whole of life reduces to a giant charade where robots never digress from their preordained scripts. Now, the interesting, one of the interesting features of this diagram is that it helps us ask a hugely important and practical question. Where do heresies come from? 
What causes hundreds of thousands of people to leave Christendom and walk into agnosticism or New Age spirituality, for example? Now, to help me talk this issue through, I want you to imagine that the, the, the four points of the cross are like a compass uh, for a moment, okay? So those on the northwest side of the dividing line will rightly point out that nearly all the heresies that have bedeviled the Christian church in recent centuries have come from the southeast of the diagram. So people who privilege God's sovereignty and divine justice are theologically strong. Those who privilege human freedom and love are the source of just about every heresy that's alive in the church today. I mean, think of post-evangelicals like Rachel Held Evans or the LGBT-affirming ex-evangelicals like Steve Chalk or those prosperity gospelers uh, on TV satellite stations. One of my reformed friends said to me in a joke, we need the stern theology of lantern-jawed Calvinists to keep the church doctrinally pure. Well, there are two ways to think about how heresies form. There is the slippery slope model, and there is the swinging pendulum model. Now, if the slippery slope model is correct, then my reformed friend was absolutely right. People who don't privilege divine sovereignty and stern justice will inevitably start to slide into the super heresies that we see all around us today. But in fact, the lesson of history is that heresies don't form by sliding down the slippery slope. They nearly always form as a reaction against something. Like a swinging pendulum, a heresy gains its momentum because it is reacting against an early heresy that traveled in the opposite direction. So I would gently ask my Reformed friends to think long and hard before they view themselves as the bastion of theological rectitude. One extreme position always generates an extreme at the opposite pole. So let's now use this framework as it's intended to be used and look for a balanced position. We need to achieve coherence along both axes. And that brings me back to the cross. It's the cross which reconciles God's justice and God's love. So we should never say, never say that God's love triumphed over God's justice at the cross. No, justice and love were reconciled. They are in harmony. It therefore follows that God's mercy will be allocated in a just and fair way. His mercy will never be allocated in a way that conflicts with his transparent justice. So imagine, uh, if you will, that you are driving down the Upper Newton Arch Road on a bright and sunny Sunday morning. It's a wide, straight road with lots of good visibility. You will discover that every car on that road is moving at a speed that is at least 35 miles per hour. Some drivers might be doing 40, but everyone, absolutely everyone, is breaking the 30 mile per hour speed limit. Suddenly, to your horror, the PSNI stop the entire convoy and start to hand out three points to every driver. Well, now imagine that every so often the policeman waves a particular car away with a smile. Some people are getting let off. How would you react? Well, you would immediately suspect that those cars were being driven by young, attractive females or else they had family members who served in the PSNI. My point is that the apparently arbitrary allocation of mercy is unfair. Let's imagine for a moment that the classic reform doctrine of unconditional election was correct. And imagine that you end up in heaven and I end up in hell. Now, according to the doctrine of unconditional election, the decision God takes 
to place you in heaven and me in hell will for all eternity be hidden within the inscrutable counsels of God. For all eternity, you will never know on what basis you ended up in heaven, and I will never know why I ended up in hell. If we all ended up in hell, someone might conceivably argue that God was being just. If we all ended up in heaven, someone might conceivably argue that God was being loving. But the moment God makes a distinction between us, there is a problem. Because you cannot say that the decision God makes is based on justice and love. Because if it was, we would both be in the same place. So that's the basic dilemma. If you allow human freedom, then you can argue that God's judgment is based on justice and love. But if you don't allow human freedom, then you cannot. Because justice and mercy just become instruments controlled by some secret decision taker beyond them. When we then examine the vertical dimension, it's important to acknowledge the great debt that we owe to Reformed theology in its insistence that we ascribe glory to God. It's an entirely noble uh, aspiration. I hope it's been clear from all we have said in this series that we acknowledge that our salvation is all of God. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We are vessels of mercy, not vessels, we are vessels of mercy, not vessels of merit. Only when we get to heaven will we be able to appreciate the incalculable amount of work God has put in drawing us to the Savior for salvation. Now, in fact, if you'll allow me to squeak in indignation for a moment, the whole point of this series was to bring honor to the character of God, to bring glory to Him. When we talk of God's glory, we think of His glorious attributes, His justice and love, His wisdom, His kindness and patience. But far too often when people talk of God's glory, what they really mean is God's power. At the, rejection, uh, at the root of the rejection of human freedom is the sense that no mere human creature, six feet of clay, has the right to stand up against God and defy His will. It is to their credit that some Reformed theologians have the intellectual honesty to admit the truth of that critique. When they say they're defending God's glory, they really mean they're defending God's power. So we need to think biblically about God's power. And when you examine how the Bible describes and defines God's power, it is a head-melting moment. Because if we're being honest, most of us think of God's power a bit like Zeus hurling thunderbolts down to the earth when he's in a bad mood. But there would be nothing glorious about God's power if it was just seen in violent action. There is no power struggle here at all. As creator, God could switch off all of created reality in the blink of an eye, if he chose to. So the idea that the creator is worried about winning a power contest with his creatures is a little absurd when you think about it. In Scripture, God's power is always seen in, in, in two main ways. Most of his power is directed inwards, and some of it is directed outwards. God's power is mostly used to sustain his patience and his endurance, his long-suffering endurance. You see, it takes real strength to endure. And Romans 9 taught us that God's power is demonstrated by his great endurance. God raised up Pharaoh to show his divine power. But how did he show that power? Paul tells us explicitly. By enduring with much patience. Anyone can lose their temper and behave violently. 
But God's power is seen in his enduring the rebellious perversity of sinful men and women and not giving up on them. Think of a father who has an angry, rebellious nine-year-old boy. In a moment of rage, the boy begins to fight his father, striking him repeatedly with his fists. Now imagine that you saw the father, a big, strong man, towering over his boy. Imagine you saw the father deliver three brutal punches to the boy's face and body. Would that be a glorious use of power? Would that reveal a glorious character? No, of course not. Real power in that situation would be seen in the father's ability to endure. Endure until the boy exhausts himself and eventually collapses, sobbing into his dad's arms. Now, when God does use his power externally, it nearly always comes in the form of resurrection power. You repeatedly see God use his power to lift people up, exerting his mighty strength to free them from the prisons in which they are trapped. On the few occasions when God does pour out his wrath, it is always an act of justice, a rational act of justice. And it usually is directed towards the spiritual forces or the ideologies that entrap individual people. Now, sometimes God does direct his wrath to people, but it is always an act of justice. Once you decouple God's power from transparent justice, God's power just becomes violence. Now, that discussion about the uniquely countercultural idea of power helps us resolve the apparent tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. God never punches down. He never pulls rank or zaps someone in irritation. God's power is always consistent with his love and his justice. And so he uses his power to endure our rebellion, to take whatever we throw at him. That's why the New Testament describes the gospel as the power of God. In fact, the cross is the power of God, says Paul. Why? Because Christ endured the cross. Paul Helm is one of the most reformed theologians in the world of scholarship today. And yet it was Helm who said that Paul's description of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1 actually defines God's power. Now, if that is true, then all the fears about God's glory being tarnished by allowing, allowing human beings to stand up against him go away. In this week of all weeks, look at what we did to Christ. That is the God to whom we ascribe sovereignty. Not Zeus, not Allah. Just as we close, I want to show you how we might use this framework as you wrestle with difficult doctrines and tough questions. I'm suggesting that any doctrine must sit in the center of our four-pillar framework. Whatever you believe about doctrines like election or prayer or eternal security, you mustn't allow your theology to move outside of that framework. Theologians who try to free God from the constraints of his own transparent justice and his own generous love are actually setting up the God of the philosophers behind the God of the Bible. When it comes to being elected to salvation, we must not step outside the framework. Whatever election means, it must be constrained by God's love and God's justice. It seems to me that the only way to achieve a coherent understanding of election is to say that God has elected Christ as the corporate head of the church. Individuals like you and me are added into the body of Christ when we respond in faith to the Savior. So we believe in corporate election. So-called unconditional election 
requires us to step outside of the matrix, outside of the framework. Our salvation becomes determined by some inscrutable, inscrutable decision-taking process that trumps God's justice and love. The framework also helps resolve tensions around the question of eternal security. Once we become a member of the body of Christ, our eternal destiny is secure. A true believer can never lose their salvation. But God's justice and love are still the guides here. Do not be deceived, says Scripture, to Christian believers. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So we can lose our eternal reward if we live in disobedience. So God's love and justice protect us from the penalty of sin. It keeps us secure. But God's love and justice also insist that we experience the consequences of our sin. Finally, we can use the framework to handle the really difficult questions that arise from the silences of Scripture. The crucial point here is that ultimately, we should not rest on the foundation of a man-made theological system. We should rest on the revealed character of God. Sometimes we have to say, like Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The problem with theological systems is that they often have to go beyond Scripture in order to complete their elaborate structures. There are some things that have not been revealed to us, probably because they refer to modes of reality that are beyond, currently, our comprehension. And that's probably why God chose not to structure the Scriptures as a systematic theology textbook. Systematic theology is good at flushing out logical contradictions, but it can go wrong when it adds in new information that is not in Scripture. So where does that leave us? I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as faithfully as I can. I tell people on the authority of Scripture to repent and to believe so that they will not perish. But I do not believe that the vast billions of people who have never heard the gospel will spend eternity in hell. And that's because when you situate the question in the center of the framework, when you consider it in the light of God's justice and love and sovereignty, you see that such an outcome would not glorify God. In fact, those who do suggest such a monstrous outcome are besmirching the character of the God of the Bible. Anyway, this was supposed to be the short version of the talk. I shudder to think how long the long version will be. It's inevitable that this series, uh, in this series we've had to deal with sensitive issues that can divide the people of God. So I want to close by once again thanking my brothers and sisters in Christ from the Reformed tradition for the immense contribution they have made to my own life. I value their friendship and their wisdom enormously. And I hope that we can disagree well as members of the family of God. Of course, not everyone in this church agrees with the teaching that has been given over these past four weeks. But it is perhaps important to state that the theological position we have outlined does represent our spiritual heritage as a church. It also reflects the settled conviction of the majority of our members. So we just wanted to be open and honest with other churches about how we seek to bring glory to God and to honor His Word. Our intention is to foster a climate of mutual respect amongst Protestant churches so that we might form a true gospel coalition with our partners in the gospel on this island. Thank you for your courteous attention, Tony. Oh,